Hi, welcome everybody. It is Thursday at five o'clock, and therefore you are at the bar. Um, I'm Inez Stepman from Independent Women's Forum. Thank you for tuning in to our fifth episode of At the Bar which is a virtual happy hour conversation about the issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. You can catch at the bar every other Thursday um, at 5 p.m. Um, happy hour. And uh, we will be streaming on Independent Women Women's Forum, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn Live. So today I have made myself a little Campari spritz, which is just like a Aperol spritz, except I prefer Campari. Uh, Aaron, Aaron, what's, what, what do you got? So, so I'm uh, much more low key with my didactic pepper here. Um, I, I will trade you places, Inez. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we are joined by Aaron Holly today uh, because Jennifer Braceris is on vacation. So hopefully somewhere uh, I, I have to know up, up, uh, I think near the beach, and she's going to be doing some long bike rides and um, having having drinks without having to talk about the <laughs> intersection of politics, law, and culture. Uh, but we are so pleased to to have Aaron here with us as as co host. Um, so Aaron and I will be talking about. Um, we are going to be talking about the blob, the administrative state. Um, we will be talking with Mark Chenoweth from the New, New Civil Liberties Alliance um, about these topics. Now, the administrative state sounds like a poor half hour conversation. It sounds very technical. And, and a lot of administrative law is very technical and detailed. Um, but the expansion of the administrative state um, and how agencies have taken over more and more decision-making power from voters is a huge deal. And I think a, a lot of what's underlying our current political mess. What do you think, Erin? Uh, absolutely. And um, as you said, Inez, you know, maybe not the, the most interesting topic uh, on uh, first glance, um, but I think one of the most crucial issues facing our government and our democracy today. Um, if you look back to the Federalist Papers and the separation of powers, uh, you have people no other than James Madison saying that the accumulation of all three power, all three of powers from all three branches, I should say. So the accumulation of judicial, legislative, and executive power uh, in the same hands is the very definition of tyranny. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot more from Mark about this, but it seems like the administrative state uh, very much fits that definition today. You've got housed within the same building even, uh, judicial, legislative, and executive powers. Uh, yep, so on that note, I think we're gonna bring up in a moment Mark Chenoweth of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, which is an organization of lawyers uh, brought together by Philip Hamburger uh, to provide a more comprehensive pushback exactly on this expanding power um, and politicization of unelected bureaucrats. Mark has done um, William Howard Taft one better. He's not just had experience in all three uh, branches of federal government. He actually has experience in all four branches, what now unfortunately must be the four branches of federal government, as well as lots of private experience suing the government. So um, welcome, Mark. It's so great to have you at the bar. Oh, it's great to be with you guys. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me to join you. So to start off with, I'm going to play um, a little quaint clip, Mark, of how our government is supposed to work uh, from Schoolhouse Rock, right? Uh, we have the three branches of federal government. We've got the legislative branch, the executive branch, then the judicial branch, um, and, and everything is going swimmingly. Uh, so I'm going to play this little clip, and then you tell us why it is no longer applicable. Right up and visit ring number one. The show's 
just begun me the president I am here to see that the laws get done the ringmaster of the government on with the show hurry 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 to ring number two see what they do in the congress pass the laws and juggling bills oh it's quite a thrill in the Focus your attention on ring number three. The judiciary's in the spotlight. The courts take the laws and they tame the crimes. Balancing the wrongs with your rights. No one part can be more powerful than any other is. Each controls the other, you see. And that's what we call checks and Everybody's act is part of the show And no one's job is more important The audience is kind of like the country you know Keeping an eye on their performance <laughs> uh, So Mark, why is that not how our government operates anymore? Well, I, I just think it's interesting uh, And probably indicative of part of the problem today That the video starts with the president Right. It, that our Constitution doesn't start with the president. Our Constitution, Article one is about the legislative branch. Right. It talks about Congress and the importance of Congress passing the laws. And and the, the uh, executive branch has very limited powers outside of foreign policy uh, under uh, under the Constitution that our founders uh, gave us. The Congress has quite a bit more power and authority, uh, but they have uh, they have tried to over time do away with a lot of that uh, and not not in a sense of of doing away with it so that the power doesn't exist anywhere in the government, but rather they've divested that power out of the legislative branch and they have put it into federal administrative agencies that in many cases report to the government, but in all too many cases, these independent agencies don't even report uh, to the government. And so we have examples, uh, and maybe we'll get to this later, but including my old former agency, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, agencies that are doing things that the president actually opposes and and th without that kind of supervision of what the agencies are doing, you don't have democratic control. You don't have democratic accountability uh, for these agencies. And, and I'd say that's the major problem. Uh, the checks and balances that the video tried to talk about go away when you have agencies that are operating relatively unchecked. And in some cases, almost completely unchecked by both uh, Congress and the president. Uh, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for example, is one agency that has almost no oversight by Congress, and it has something the Supreme Court did last summer. But uh, we can get we can get more to that specific example. But but that's what I would say, uh, Inez, is that uh, the, the lack of accountability is the main thing that that has changed by shifting all these things over to the blob. So, so when we're thinking about administrative agencies, and we talked, we saw from the schoolhouse video that conventionally we think of government as having three branches. We've got the legislative, we've got the executive or the president, uh, and then we've got the judiciary. So, where does the administrative state fit within that? And, and I think that may depend on, on you know whether you're talking about an independent agency or not. But can you just walk us through where administrative agencies fit within the constitutional structure? I, I mean possibly both practically today, and then how should they fit? You know, how do they fit under the Constitution? 
Sure. So they don't fit under the Constitution, I think, is the is the short answer. I, uh, my boss, uh, Philip Hamburger, the guy who who got uh, the New Civil Liberties Alliance uh, founded, wrote a book in, in 2014, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? Uh, it's, a, it's a long tome. He, he calls it his book stop. It's like seven or eight hundred pages. Uh, but the short answer is, yes, it's unlawful. And the reason for that, people have tried to say over time that, well, our founders didn't anticipate this kind of government, but as things have gotten bigger and more complicated and Congress can't do everything, you have to have these agencies. And Phillips' move was to say, no, 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 let's go back and look at all of the different pathologies of monarchical rule that existed before the Constitution. And then we can see all of the things that the founders did to try to prevent those kinds of abuses of power from recurring. And yet today's administrative state produces all of those same pathologies that we saw uh, before the Constitution existed. So the idea that the Constitution didn't anticipate the administrative state is false. The Constitution explicitly tried to forbid something like the administrative state from coming about, and yet it snuck in the back door anyway. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about some of the cases either that you have ongoing or um, that you have had in the past so we can really try to, to demonstrate how this kind of unaccountable power interacts with, with um, you know, people's lives and, and ordinary Americans going about their daily business? Sure, absolutely. And uh, uh, maybe the best place to start is with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that I, that I started to mention a, a minute ago. Uh, here you have an agency that is funded completely outside of the congressional appropriations process. People may not realize that, but the way that the CFPB is funded is that every quarter it sends a letter to the Federal Reserve and says, we would like this much money. And the Federal Reserve, by law, has to give the money over. Now, there is a cap of like 12 percent or something like that of the of the earnings of the Fed. But it, but that cap even goes up over time. Uh, but but the Fed just has to turn that money over to the CFPB. That's how it's funded. There's no congressional oversight appropriations. Uh, CFPB can tell Congress what it's up to and how it spends its money uh, if it so chooses. Uh, but the appropriations committees don't have any control over that. They can't stop CFPB from spending money. Uh, and so it's it's operating largely out of uh, out of control of of the legislative branch. At the same time, it had been operating largely out of control of the president as well, because the uh, the head, the director of the CFPB uh, was once once appointed and appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. But once that person was in charge, they had a five year term and they didn't really report to the president. They were largely independent. And because of of that structure, a case went to the Supreme Court last summer called Sala Law v. CFPB, in which the Supreme Court said, yeah, that's not going to work. You can't have uh, an agency director who's independent like that. We're going to have to sever, at least this was the solution the court came up with. We're going to sever that independence and say that the head of the CFPB now can be fired uh, by the president. But the problem with that is now all that funding I was just talking about that Congress isn't involved with, that's under the direct control of the president now. So that's definitely unconstitutional under our under our system to have the president uh, in charge of of a funding stream, uh, 12, 12% or more of the Federal Reserve earnings every year just for the president to direct how to spend against, against uh, uh, ostensibly to protect uh, folks from, from fraud and abuse by folks in, in different kinds of uh, consumer financial sectors, right? So to get back to your question, like, how does this affect people? Well, first of all, the agency has tried to get into areas that Congress didn't want it to get into, like 
uh, auto loans, uh, for example. Uh, it's also tried to get into areas like uh, our client, uh, Crystal Maroney, is a, uh, and, and I could tell you a little bit more about the lawsuit that we have against the CFPB, but her situation is that she's a, a small independent businesswoman. She has a law firm uh, where she is, she's the lawyer, and then she has several people who work for her, uh, and they provide advice and counsel to folks in the debt collection industry. She is not a debt collector herself, but she tries to help with compliance and, and other things with folks who are in that industry. The CFPB doesn't like that industry very much, and so they, they wanted to collect a bunch of information on her clients, and they made a, they made a demand for, uh, for her to turn over a bunch of, of records that were attorney-client privilege materials. And she said, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And again, the CFPB does not regulate the practice of law. That's up to the state bar. It's not up to the CFPB. But they blow right through that because they don't have the checks that, that ought to be in place to prevent them from, uh, from doing that. And so uh, here you have a business person who is trying to provide attorney-client privileged counsel and information to people in a admittedly disfavored industry in certain quarters, certainly at the CFPB. Uh, and she is being overwhelmed with outrageous demands. I mean, it would take her a hundred, more than a hundred percent of the hours that she has in the day to comply with what the CFPB is trying to get her to do. So she has the choice of either going out of business or not complying. Those are really the only two options that the agency is giving her. And, and maybe that's deliberate. Maybe they just want her to go out of business. They're not really interested in uh, in giving her uh, a fair shake. Uh, but that's, you know, that's the sort of problem that exists when you have these agencies run amok. And, and, and the particular claim that she's making in her lawsuit against the CFPB is that they are unlawfully, unconstitutionally uh, funded, and that Congress has uh, divested itself of the power of the purse in this situation, and that that violates Article One, Section 1 of the Constitution, as well as the Appropriations Clause of the Constitution for CFPB to operate the way uh, that it does. But that's that's one example. Uh, we have you know 30 other 30 you name the agency I'll give you another case. We've got tons of tons of lawsuits going on against the government. So one of my favorite cases, I think it predates uh, NCLA a little bit, um, but it's a case called Sackett versus the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and this case is truly uh, something you would think it was something that was made up, um, but it's not. This couple uh, I think had retired um, and had their home on a lake. Um, it was several rows back, several homes back from the lake. So they started to build their house. Um, then some engineers uh, showed up uh, from the Environmental Protection Agency, or I think the Corps of Engineers, and said, hey, wait a minute, you, you can't build here. This is a wetland. Um, and they looked around. It, it's not wet. Um, it doesn't appear to be a wetland. They're in a suburban development. Um, but yet the agency slaps them with a consent decree uh, which requires them to either restore uh, their lot, their, their home lot, to its prior condition or pay something like $75,000 a day. Um, and the really crazy thing about this um, is if you look at the statute, which is passed by Congress, um, it says that uh, the agencies shall have jurisdiction over, quote, waters of the United States. Well, as Mark well knows, through a series of administrative mm -hmm. actions, uh, that waters of the United States has now been interpreted by this agency to include a suburban development that doesn't have any signs uh, of either certainly a lake or waters of the US uh, or even a wetland. Um, this case came out the right, right way. Uh, an organization litigated it up to the Supreme Court, um, but what's particularly um, sort of crazy or horrifying about this case 
is the, the position that the EPA took. They said, look, you have to comply with this order and repair this land at costs of hundreds of thousands of dollars or pay $75,000 a day, but you don't get to challenge it. You don't right. get to take this to the court at all. And Mark, can you just tell us a little bit about what, what's wrong with a scenario like that? And do you see other places where agencies are so clearly abusing their discretion? We do see other places like this where exactly the situation you describe, where agencies are essentially trying to extract the penalty up front before you ever get a chance to test your legal rights. Uh, or if you want to assert your legal rights, then the agency claims, well, that's fine, but you're going to have to pay $39,000 a day or $75,000 a day or whatever it is, these massive fines that no one can actually afford to pay. So it's just another way of saying uh, it, it would be like if you want to take it to the criminal context, it would be like setting a bail amount that no one could meet, right? Sure, we'll we'll let you out of, of jail pending trial, but you have to pay us $10 million. Uh, very, very few people could could ever hope to do that, right? So you would just be sitting in jail until until trial, even if you uh, had uh, even if you had good arguments as to why you were innocent uh, and and hadn't had a chance to defend yourself yet. And this is a similar sort of situation, but it's in the in the administrative context, or you're talking about Aaron, the environmental context. We see this as well. The actually, the environmental context is uh, a very big area uh, where we where we see this happen a lot. The EPA likes to throw its weight around and. And I think it'd be great if Congress could do something about taking these daily fines down, because it's one of the things the agency uh, definitely uses to to abuse uh, its power. Uh, but we see that same sort of, of thing happen in some of the banking uh, regulation uh, areas. We see it at the state level uh, as well. We uh, we filed an amicus brief uh, uh, earlier this year against the California Coastal Commission, which decided to fine a couple in Malibu, I believe it was over $4 million, uh, supposedly for putting a fence. And when I say a fence, you, you might be imagining something that's like 100 yards long. But this was, this was in Malibu, and there's a cliff, and there's a dangerous area where, yes, it's, there's a public beach and people can access it. But if you try to go through this one area, there's a, there's a cliff that you're going to encounter, and it's, it's dangerous. And so the uh, actually the predators these I don't think these homeowners even erected the fence that was there when they bought the property, but uh, but the agency came in and and sued them over this and said you know you're blocking public access to the beach and we're gonna we're gonna fine you four million dollars so of course they take down the fence. This didn't stop them from having to to pay the four million dollars, but they take down the fence and a couple of days later the government comes in and puts up a fence because it's dangerous and they don't want people accessing it. It's just, right, it, it just boggles the mind. And, and so exactly why do they need to pay $4 million? Because they put up a fence instead of the government? I mean, it's 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 that kind of thing that's that's so maddening about the way that the government... Uh, yeah, it really is, as, as um, Hamburger wrote in, in his book that you referenced, it really is kind of like a, a kingly prerogative, right? Um, it, it seems like it's totally disconnected from the idea of the government working for the people. Um, but you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, Congress could change this. They could, for example, pass a statute that says that the agencies cannot fine people or trap people with fines like this. Um, I have a little, little meme here for what Congress is actually doing. You get legislative power and you get legislative <laughs> power and, um, in, in any case, it, it's pretty clear that Congress is writing a lot of statutes where they're just pushing off any 
kind of political accountability for things that might be specific or unpopular to the administrative agencies. I mean, what do we do about how much Congress has atrophied um, in terms of writing these statutes? So Congress could solve the problem, right, to a certain extent, at least for things going forward in the future. But part of the problem with the delegation of power is that Congress doesn't have a good way to get it back. Right. Once it's once it's the reason I don't use the term delegation, or at least I try to avoid it unless it's necessary for for the person I'm talking to to understand my point is because when you say that I'm delegating power, the implication is that I can get it back. Right. If I if I'm the the director and I'm delegating something to the deputy director to get done, well, the, the understanding that both of us and everyone else has is that at any point in time, I can tell the deputy director, you know what, never mind, let me just I'm going to do that myself. That's that's delegation. That's not what happens in Congress. When Congress passes a law uh, and creates a new agency or gives power over to an agency and says, you go write regulations to, to solve this problem. Well, if, if Congress doesn't like the regulations that the agency writes, they have to pass a new law in order to overturn those regulations. Well, who has to agree to that new law? The president. So if the regulations were written in a way that the president likes and Congress doesn't, Congress is out of luck. They'd have to get a two-thirds vote of both houses to overturn a presidential veto, and that's almost impossible to do. So this, this, they're not really delegating legislative power. They're divesting the power. They're giving up power that they cannot and will not give, get back when they uh, turn over the ability to these administrative agencies to legislate in the, in the various uh, areas that we're talking about. And what about the argument, Mark, that we hear a lot that this is really just something Congress has to do, that the government, you know, for better or worse, is is large now. Um, I'd say worse. <laughs> um, but, you know, these administrative agencies have a lot of technical authority or excuse me, technical expertise. Uh, they know about the environment, for example. They know about things that it's just um, not possible for legislators to know about. Well, I think there's multiple responses to that. I mean, I think that, you know, if, if I worked for the Cato Institute, my response would probably have something to do about the size of government and, and so forth. But, but one of the things that, that NCLA has tried to stress is that this isn't really a size of government issue necessarily. Now, would a smaller government violate fewer civil liberties? Sure. And so there could be a reason to prune it back uh, for, for that sort of reason. But all we're trying to say is, look, if you're if these administrative agencies are going to exist and for the obviously they're going to for the time being, there's no reason why they can't respect people's civil liberties. There's no reason why we can't have constitutional guardrails on the agencies and say, look, if you're going to do these things, fine. But, for example, if you're going to have an adjudication in an agency, you can't take away someone's jury trial rights right now. And, and you guys may or may not realize this, but there's 10 times as many cases that are brought in front of administrative law judges every year as are brought in front of Article Three federal judges, 10 times as many. So, or, or I said that slightly wrong. So 10 times as many people are, are go in, in front of an ALJ as go in front of a, a federal district court uh, judge. Now, the problem with that is if you are in one of these proceedings, and most of our clients are, that's most of our cases involve uh, ALJ proceedings of one sort or another, you don't have the federal rules of evidence protecting you. You don't have the federal rules of civil procedure protecting you. You don't have a jury. And so, and folks say, well, but there's a backstop of, of, a, of a federal judge review. Not really, because by the time you get a federal judge to review it, first of all, you don't go to federal district court. You go straight to the federal court of appeals in most cases. You don't ever get a jury to review 
the facts. You're stuck with the factual findings made by the ALJ. You're stuck with the administrative record created by the agency and approved by the district court judge. You don't have an opportunity to get any additional facts in front of the fact finder. Uh, in fact, the, the, the Court of Appeals isn't a fact finder at that point. They're supposed to just defer to the factual findings of, of the agency. Uh, so the idea that there's any sort of Article Three backstop, just not true, uh, at least not in a not in a way that could that, that provides the bulwark for our civil liberties that jury trials were meant to meant to provide. And then a lot of the other rest of the Bill of Rights goes away as well. You don't have uh, the right to counsel necessarily. You don't have the right to uh, to not testify against yourself. You don't have you're not free from uh, searches and seizures. You're not uh, you don't have the right to the provision of of defense witnesses. I mean, there's all sorts of things. I mean, you can just sort of look at the entire Bill of Rights, particularly the uh, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th Amendments, and the things that really go to criminal penalties and protecting people. And those things are almost entirely absent uh, from administrative proceedings, which is why the administrative agencies, when they have a choice, prefer to go in front of their in-house judges instead of in front of Article Three courts, because they don't have to give you your rights. Rights have become options when federal administrative agencies are involved, rather than something that the people can count on and rely on to protect their civil liberties. So um, th- there's a whole question here that's missing. You, you mentioned that the, the um, courts, the federal courts as a backstop, Article Three courts as a backstop. I mean, so the, the, the courts arguably have decided um, that they're going to go ahead and defer to agencies in matters of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a little uh, viral video. Um, this was actually going very popular when I was in law school and when I was studying for my admin law exams. Um, so we have a little video about the so-called Chevron two-step. And then I'm going to ask you what federal courts, um, when we come back, what federal courts could actually do um, in terms of stopping this kind of what I would term lawless behavior um, by agencies. This is the final examination for administrative law at New York University School of Law. Please have your IDs out on the table. The exam is four hours long and open book. You may begin. Yo, yo, let's do the Chevron two step. I'ma do the Chevron, you to do the step. Everyone around looking at me making bets. I review the policy according to my preference. Stop. I give deference. Step one. Is there ambiguity? Step two. Looking for reasonability. If it passes the test, then it's as good as gone. We defer to the agency. It's called the Chevron. I'ma do the Chevron, you to do the Chevron, we do the Chevron, we do the Chevron. Two step. I'ma do the Chevron, you to do the Chevron, we do the Chevron. Two step. I'ma do the Chevron, you to do the Chevron, we do the Chevron. Two step. I'ma do the Chevron. To me comes along just to be a hero Gotta make it difficult out of step zero Now we gotta look up for congressional intent Did Congress authorize the agency to implement? If we think that it did, then we move along Did the agency do it? Did it hide the ball? Trying to sneak policy with a force of law If it fails step zero, don't lose 
bullshit tees. Get more and it's good to share them, but it's PC free. Wait, constitutional avoidance, more like congressional annoyance. But Congress can't be delegating all the big questions. They should make policy. That's why we have elections. So, so long as the agency's resolution doesn't get too close to the Constitution. Put your hands on your head and crack a yawn. We just kicking back, doing the Chevron. I'm gonna do the Chevron. Just this is just a reminder of the cycle of cringe, right? Um, those of you who think I love that's it, I haven't really seen lame, that before. <laughs> uh, good luck in ten years. You're going to be cringe and lame too. Um, <laughs> they have much better moves than I ever did. <laughs> um, in in any case, um, Mark, they're they're talking about the Chevron doctrine, obviously. Um, sure. And you know, could you lay out for us what that doctrine is, and then also um, why NCLA thinks that. Um, it needs to be pared back or narrowed or maybe even eliminated altogether. Sure. I actually think the video did a fantastic job of, of laying out uh, what Chevron is. Uh, so when uh, if an agency has uh, jurisdiction over a particular question, if, if Congress has assigned that question uh, to the agency, then the first question is, is the statute ambiguous about what Congress wanted? And if there is ambiguity, that's step one to determine whether there's ambiguity. And there are a lot of traditional statutory interpretation tools that you use at that step to discern whether the statutory language is, is clear or whether there's ambiguity. But once you've determined there's ambiguity, then the second step of Chevron uh, is whether or not the agency's interpretation is a reasonable one or not. And if it is, then judges are instructed by the Supreme Court's Chevron decision, which, by the way, was a decision handed down in 1984 with only six justices sitting there were three justices recused from the case. They didn't think that they were doing a watershed moment in administrative law at the time that they handed down the decision. And yet it's it's developed this talismanic significance uh, across all of administrative law. It is the most single, most heavily cited case, even though it's only been around since 1984. It's cited more than Marbury v. Madison. It's cited more than Roe v. Wade. It is the single most cited law case in American history. Uh, and and, the, and what it tells the lower federal courts to do is to defer to agencies when they have reasonable interpretations of laws that are under their jurisdiction. And you said, so what's what's the problem with that? Well, we would need uh, about five more shows to go into all the problems with it. But let me let me give you a couple of of uh, of the smaller uh, or not smaller. These are huge problems, but a couple of specific uh, concerns with Chevron first. Imagine that you are in a lawsuit against a federal administrative agency. Either it's one of those enforcement actions I was talking about before where they're coming after you, or maybe you're suing the agency over something that you think the agency uh, has done wrong or has misinterpreted. Well, presumably you think you're going to get a fair trial and the due process of law dictates that you should get a fair trial. Well, how fair is it if when it comes to the very issue that you're suing over, the, the, the crux of the case involves whether the agency is interpreting the statute correctly or not. And your judge, your supposedly independent adjudicator, is instructed to defer to your opponent's interpretation of the law, right? You're, there, that is no, not due process. That is not a fair trial. That, uh, because what Chevron dictates is the agency wins even if its position, I mean, as long as its position is reasonable. So even if the judge thinks that your position, your interpretation of the law is better, and more reasonable than the agency's interpretation, you still lose. So that's a huge problem from a, from a fairness, from a due process uh, standpoint. Now, the second problem that, that we see with all of these doctrines, and by the way, one of the problems with deference is it's not just Chevron, it's a multi-headed hydra. There's at least a dozen different kinds of 
judicial deference that, uh, that NCLA is fighting against right now. But the other problem is that it does away with judicial independence. And I hinted at that before in, in terms of the judge having to defer to the agency. But if you look at the Constitution, all of the various things that have been put in to assure the independence of the judiciary, lifetime tenure, their salaries can't be changed, they, no religious test, they can't serve in Congress at the same time as they're a judge. They can't serve in the Electoral College at the same time as they're a judge. There's all of these things that are put in place just to preserve and protect the independence of the judiciary. Dozens, well, I haven't counted, but at least a dozen provisions of the Constitution go to try to protect the independence of the judiciary. And with one fell swoop, Chevron comes in and says, eh, independence is overrated. Judges just defer to the administrative agencies. Well, I, I think that violates the judicial oath. I think it violates Article 3. Uh, and we need to get rid of these judicial deference doctrines so that we can get back to having an independent judiciary that our founders gave us. And if I, uh, I don't know how long you want to spend on this particular topic, but there's one case uh, pending right now at the U.S. Supreme Court that could be helpful uh, in, in this. We have, a, we have filed a cert petition uh, on behalf of uh, a gentleman who's sitting in federal prison named Marcus Broadway. Uh, and the particular issue in his case has to do with Stinson deference. This is one of these dozen kinds of judicial deference. Stinson, Stinson deference is deference to the commentary of the U.S. sentencing guidelines. So Congress put, put out these sentencing guidelines, and there's a U.S. Sentencing Guidelines Commission that can change them over time. The changes, the amendments that it makes go in front of Congress. It can vote them up or down. That's all fine for the most part. Uh, but then the agency or the, rather the commission has gotten into the habit instead of amending things, because that's kind of tough. And, you know, you have to get Congress's assent and all that kind of thing. Uh, they've just decided to start sneaking things into the commentary uh, to the to the guidelines. And if it's in the commentary, then the Stinson deference says you have to defer to it, except the problem is then you have people's sentences like Mr. Broadway is deemed an armed armed uh, or de deemed a career criminal. Uh, as a result of something that's in the commentary that's not in a federal statute, Congress never voted on it. Uh, and again, we think that's a, that's a real a due process problem. And uh, hopefully this is one area of deference that the court will be willing to clean up. Uh, we should know by June 30th whether it's going to take either this case or there's a couple other stints and deference cases pending at the court right now. Aaron, you're still muted. Thank you. Thanks, Inez. Uh, we know we've got several new members of the court um, who have had, uh, I think, some different perspectives on Chevron um, and on uh, the powers of agencies. So what do you think of, are your chances if the Supreme Court does grant certain Broadway or some of these other cases that challenge the Chevron doctrine more broadly? Um, do you think that it's possible the court might make some inroads? I think it's possible the court will make some inroads. I think that uh, uh, the different justices do have different perspectives on this. I mean, I think Justice Gorsuch was probably the most, uh, when he was on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeal, was was the most was the most uh, 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 upfront about his opposition to judicial deference uh, doctrines, and was very eloquent, in fact, with his opposition and explanation for what's wrong with Chevron and the other. The other doctrines, Brand X. Yeah, just, and, to and jump so in with this little tidbit um, that Mark is probably too um, too humble to say about his own or organization. I do remember that during um, Justice Gorsuch's confirmation hearings, the word Hamburgerian um, was thrown <laughs> around a lot to describe his judicial philosophy. 
that, that's funny. The other thing that, that happened when uh, when Amy Coney Barrett was on the uh, was going through the confirmation process, we got a couple of emails and things sent to us saying, "Hey, you know, uh, when she teaches this this area of law, hamburgers on her syllabus." And so there was this little mini uh, you know, tempest in a teapot over the fact that she had uh, had hamburger stuff on her uh, on her syllabus uh, teaching about this area of law. Uh, so so yeah, I do think that Gorsuch, Barrett, certainly Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, what what Kavanaugh has said, though, particularly in the D.C. Circuit, is that he he has sort of a major questions doctrine approach, which is to say that, well, uh, if it's a major question, then we assume that Congress we don't lightly assume that Congress assigned this to the agency. We would be less likely uh, to see that as an area where we have to defer. And Chief Justice Roberts has given some uh, you know, some articulation to that idea as well over time. But. And, and there's, it's not that there's anything wrong with the with that doctrine, but if that's all you're going to do to to rein Chevron in, that that doesn't rein it in very much or very far. So I hope that they'll look at something more fundamental, like the the violations of due process that occur as a result of of judicial deference. Uh, Stinson, uh, the the way that Stinson deference came about, by the way, it was a case where the sentencing, the commentary to the sentencing guidelines. Uh, was reducing someone's sentence. And then that made it up to the court and the court said, oh yeah, that's fine. Well, so they never actually grappled with this problem of someone's sentence increasing as a result of something that is in the, the commentary. And I think that folks understand based on the rule of lenity and some other concepts that you can't have ambiguous things being interpreted against a criminal defendant. And yet that's what Stinson deference does. Uh, so again, I think there's different arguments about all the different kinds of deference. But I do think, to answer your question, Aaron, I do think that there will be some movement. I just, I'm, I hope that it's significant movement and not just uh, marginal movement on, on these judicial deference doctrine questions. Well, I wish Justice Scalia were alive for a lot of reasons, um, but one of them would be to get his input on this case, because as some of our listeners may know, um, he was uh, behind the Chevron doctrine, um, had sort of started to rethink that in recent years. But he was also a firm believer in the uh, role that judges have in giving out sentences, um, sort of under Article 3, and then also in the rule of lenity. So any predictions on what a Justice Scalia would have done in the Stinson case or in, in well, the broader case that raises Stinson deference? Yeah. Uh, so a couple of thoughts on that. One is that we were told by a clerk that, uh, that uh, Philip Hamburger's book was on Justice Scalia's desk when he passed mm -hmm. away. So I don't know how far he had gotten into it. So I don't know how... Uh, I don't know whether he had been persuaded over to this point of view or not. I, I can say that one of the most uh, atrocious versions of judicial deference is the Brand X doctrine. And it holds that even if there's a prior uh, on point precedent from a federal court of appeals interpreting the statute in a particular way, if the agency has subsequently interpreted it through, through a rule in a different way, that that court still has to defer to the agency rather than its own prior precedent. That's what Brand X says, which is, I mean, talk about a real violation <laughs> of, of the idea that the judiciary is supposed to say what the law is. And the author of that Brand X decision was Clarence Thomas, which is, made, is which I think is surprising. Uh, but I'm happy to say that when NCLA filed a cert petition last year at the Supreme Court uh, in a case called Baldwin v. IRS, that uh, even though the court denied cert, uh, Justice Thomas wrote a very eloquent dissent from the denial of cert, repudiating the Brand X doctrine, saying that we had come to the to the brink of administrative absolutism as a result of some of these judicial deference doctrines, and that he was prepared to walk back from the brink, and he hoped that some of his fellow justices would join him. 
So if Justice Thomas was willing to see the error of his ways on this issue uh, and, and show that kind of, of humility, and as I say, it's a very eloquent dissent from the denial of cert. I commend it to everyone. Uh, I think Justice, I, I believe Justice Scalia might have might have uh, uh, shown the same sort of, let's call it growth over time, because that's what the left likes to call it when people change their minds on the court in a liberal direction. Well, I was going to say it's what happens with the administrative state. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I want to touch on something that maybe NCLA doesn't often get into. And I understand um, you guys take cases uh, politically from all corners of the spectrum. You don't care if these, these cases are advancing conservative or liberal policies. You are just concerned about the restraint um, of the administrative state. But in the last administration, I think we saw a move um, that was unprecedented even within. So, so conservatives have been talking about the expansion of the administrative state for a long time, um, have been you know, arguing that Wilsonian ideas about this neutral, supposedly sort of neutral scientific form of government that's divorced from any real democratic accountability with the people is a pipe dream. Um, and that it is inherently political and that you can't take politics out of politics. So it's best to, to give the voters oversight um, when policy decisions are being made. Uh, but it seems to me that in the last administration, we saw the next iteration um, of, of the administrative state, which is uh, the fact that we, can, we know from um, FEC data that the, the folks who work for the federal government are overwhelmingly um, are overwhelmingly Democrats and left-leaning. So, for example, in the 2016 election, uh, 95% of the political donations that were recorded by the FEC um, from federal employees went to Hillary Clinton. Um, so there is a very lopsided ratio there. And we saw the administrative state essentially fight back against the president who was um, kind of unable to control. I mean, the entire quote unquote constitutional theory of the administrative state is that it's going to be controlled primarily by the president and, and occasionally oversight from Congress. But here we saw very clearly, you know, we saw a lot of, of politically motivated leaking. We saw um, active slow walking of any of, of the, the policy priorities of, of the administration. Um, we, of course, we saw a, a lot of this play out in, in the course of impeachment. We basically saw um, people who are unelected bureaucrats try to stop the policies of the elected president within the administrative branch. I mean, what and do you think about it? What do you think about that development, the fact that the the administrative state is now not just throwing around its policy weight, which is what I think um, conservatives yeah. and, and people who are worried about its power have been talking about for a long time, but it's now like actively interfering in politics, not just, you know, policy or how the rules are written, but actively interfering in politics. Right. And so that that takes that uh, that destruction of of your voting rights to a whole new level. Right. It's bad enough that these agencies are doing things without accountability and uh, in a way that, that you've not had an opportunity to vote on the way that you can vote on what on what Congress is doing, or at least who you're sending there to, to do the voting. Uh, but if they're actively working against a democratically elected president, uh, then that's worse. And I, I, I you definitely saw that. I live in a neighborhood in Arlington, Virginia, and I, I won't out my neighbor here, but uh, at the at the block party, uh, I had one neighbor who was actively bragging about all the work that she was doing to slow down and interfere with the Trump administration. I mean, this is the mentality uh, that you know otherwise nice and decent neighbor type people uh, have when they are in these federal uh, bureaucracies and particularly in the administrative agencies. Uh, and so it's uh, it's very worrisome. Uh, 
you know, I don't know, I don't know what, what we do about it other than, uh, I mean, I think there were a few different dynamics that were, that were taking place, right? There was the, the lie that was told about Russian collusion that I think some people were sort of justifying their behavior based on this false narrative that was being, that was being peddled. Uh, and hopefully we'll, that we won't see a repeat of that sort of thing again. We also had a president in, in President Trump who wasn't a previous office holder and didn't have a bunch of, of folks to kind of bring in power with him. Usually if it's a, a governor uh, taking over the presidency, they have a lot of, of folks in their network uh, like Governor Bush did that they can kind of bring with them and put trusted lieutenants in different places around uh, the federal government. Uh, Trump didn't have enough trusted lieutenants that he could put in places uh, around around the federal government. And then we saw the 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 slow rolling on the part of the Senate trying to prevent all of these different uh, political appointees from being confirmed so that even years into the Trump administration, you still had a number of unfilled positions. And that, of course, empowered the uh, the unelected uh, bureaucracy below those levels to have even more power than they otherwise would. So there's there's different places there that we can attack that problem. Uh, but I, you know, it might be time to, to to think about civil service reform as well. It's not something NCLA uh, works on, but uh, uh, that's my Mark knows. That's my yeah, I, I do. <laughs> I, I, I was at a different organization before IWF, and I it had nothing to do with what I was working on there, and I still managed to put out a white paper on it, just like <laughs> force them to do it. Same thing with IWF, like. Um, but this is my little bugaboo. I think that if uh, elected bureaucrats are going to be making policy and interfering with politics, then they ought to be directly responsible to their bosses who are elected, just like every other at-will employee in the United States. But um, Aaron, why don't you ask the last question here? So so this is sort of a pet project of my own, um, but I would love to hear a little bit uh, about the non-delegation doctrine. Um, and as Inez mentioned, there's sort of two ways that you can think about justifying the administrative state. One is that the administrative state um, is constitutional because it is I'm getting some feedback here, but the administrative state um, is constitutional because it reports to the executive. Um, the other sort of theory is that it's okay because Congress has sort of given or authorized agencies to make these rules. Um, but then we get the non-delegation doctrine, and I'd love to hear a little bit about, Mark, whether you think it's true that, that one way we can sort of rationalize the administrative state is because Congress is setting the policy and the agency is simply carrying it out, um, or should we should we think about um, having courts or, or hoping that courts and pushing cases toward courts uh, so that they will actually require Congress to do that? Yeah, so I, I think that it depends on what it is that, that Congress is delegating. I mean, I think at a minimum, when Congress is delegating core legislative power, so for example, back to the CFPB uh, case I was talking about earlier, if Congress is going to give up the power of the purse, that's a problem. And the Supreme Court, I mean, lower courts should jump in too, but the Supreme Court should certainly jump in and tell the CFPB, no way, no how, you cannot be, you cannot be funded that way and strike down the funding mechanism. And if that means the CFPB goes unfunded for you know, six months while Congress is trying to uh, to figure out a way to to uh, fix the funding mechanism, so be it. Uh, but but I think that we need that kind of discipline uh, to prevent uh, Congress from giving away uh, too much uh, power. If you're talking about areas where, uh, like foreign policy, where the and and I think that Justice Gorsuch talked about this a little bit in the in the Gundy case, some of the some of the more traditional executive areas, uh, whether it's foreign policy or immigration or so, some other places. Maybe it's okay for Congress to to not 
uh, have quite as tight a reign over over those areas. But all too often, what we see is Congress just sort of ceding the floor to a to an agency to write whatever rules and regulations it wants to. Uh, that and if it's setting policy like that, then really it ought to be Congress and not the agency that is that is doing that uh, activity. One of the things that that Philip Hamburger has talked about, and I, I think this would be a terrific way to go, uh, is to have these any action that an agency takes uh, sunset unless and until Congress approves it. And and I understand that it might take a constitutional amendment to do that, so maybe this is unrealistic. Uh, but if we're going to have these administrative agencies in place and we want democratic accountability for the actions that they undertake, then maybe we need to flip it a little bit and we need to say, okay, that's fine. You can propose something or you can put a rule or regulation out there, uh, but it's only going to be in effect for whatever it is, a year or something. And if Congress doesn't approve it, it goes away. And I think that that would be one way of trying to restore some democratic accountability. Uh, the other way is through a, a reinvigorated non-delegation doctrine. If the courts would would uh, would uh, cramp cramp down on that, clamp down on that, I should say a little bit more. Uh, then, then I think that would be wonderful as well. But I think that they could do that piecemeal over time. I don't think you're going to get one giant non-delegation decision from the court saying, okay, now federal courts go to town, start start cracking down on, on these agencies. But I do think that they can identify things over time, whether it's it's the power of the purse or it's it's certain kinds of, of policies that that Congress has allowed to to sort of leak out into into the agencies. If they could pull back on some of those uh, over time, then I think the agencies would adjust and you'd see less uh, uh, I think that, that, that there would be a, a sort of uh, uh, training effect. That's not the best term. Maybe you guys have a better one, but there'd be a, a sort of uh, French foreign legion effect. Sometimes people call it right. If, if the, if the Supreme court would take out one of these uh, agencies or the, the abuses of power at one of these agencies, the other ones might say, Oh, wait a minute. Okay. Hot stove. Maybe we need to step back and, and not, uh, not step over the line as much as we're doing and start to respect those constitutional guardrails. Uh, that that we were talking about earlier. Uh, a little a little uh, deterrence through strength there. Um, <laughs> well, uh, that's really what it's all about, right? It, it is about making sure that our government is actually accountable to the American people, and regardless of the decisions, the political decisions the American people make, um, it's it's about making sure that they're actually the ones making those decisions. Because oftentimes, it seems recently um, in recent decades that. Although we have all of these fights over voting laws, all of these fights over who's voting, um, that actually the, the the policy that we're voting on is more and more circumscribed as more and more issues are decided by people who never have to stand for election. So I do think thank you for coming on, Mark, and um, helping us all to understand something that I think, even though it's complicated, is is absolutely critical to the continuance of self-government. And thank you. Thank you to our audience. Um, I have just about finished my drink, which means that <laughs> at the bar is coming to a close. Um, you can catch us every two weeks at the IWF Facebook page, LinkedIn, or a lot of other places. Um, and thank you for tuning in this week and hope to see you in two weeks. Thank you.